You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Hello and welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax. And I'm Micah Hunt. And we are the hosts of this monthly politics and pop culture podcast. Because it's monthly, we like to start things off by recapping the month that was for each of us. So, Micah, how was your October the best month of the year, objectively? Um, yeah, it, it was spooky, or mm-hmm. spooky, I like to say. And um, there was candy and pumpkins. Perfect. Um, That's all we need. Thanksgiving. Um, I also got a cold and was a big baby about it. Um, did not enjoy. Colds can be spooky, so it's quite on theme, actually. This is true. How was your October? Also good. I went to New Hampshire towards the end of it for a Twilight birthday slash Halloween party, and I dressed up as Aro, and it was very fun. So I think that was the highlight of my month. And of course, all the fall foliage. I did a little bit of apple picking to Amazing. New York. So yeah. Got to get in on those fall activities. Did you uh, read anything this month? I did. Um, mm. I read a couple things. The book I wanted to talk about is um, called The Long Road Home, Blackness and Belonging by Deb Thompson. Um, it's kind of part memoir, part nonfiction um, about race. It goes through Deb's experience of growing up Black in Canada um, as the descendant of a former slave who escaped to Canada on the so-called Underground Railroad. And then it goes through her return to America um, and being the first family member in her family to um, go back to America. Um, And her daughter is the first Thompson born in America in, like, since her ancestors who were slaves um deb um was one of my profs at mcgill oh wow she's kind of one of the most brilliant people i've ever met both like in person and in writing um it was really cool to read something for, that i kind of like got to see the genesis of um when i was her student um i think it has a really good balance of both personal narrative and um historical background and like theory um it's definitely rooted in like black studies and political science but it's not like inaccessible in any way it's very accessible um i would highly recommend it i think it gives a really interesting perspective because it's from um a canadian perspective it like investigates american race and racism in an interesting way and then like gives an interesting um understanding of Canadian racism and how they're both similar and different from each other. Um, and so I would highly recommend uh, available, it's available in the States too, but like in every Canadian bookstore, it's like everywhere right now. And is it new? Is that why it's sort of everywhere? Yeah, it came out in September. Oh, exciting. And is this yeah. her first book or are there It's her first well? like popular nonfiction book, but she has like, I think two like academic books about her like original research is on race and the census and it's really interesting oh wow that does sound really interesting yeah huh we'll have to add that to my list i read a really fun book this month that i want to talk about it is called carrie soto is back it's the new taylor jenkins read i am sure you've heard of it have you Micah? of course all over yeah you read malibu rising not too long ago i did yes and that was not a win. Not for me, but I'm still open to more Taylor Jenkins read in my life. Okay, well, I would encourage you to give this one a go. It's about a former women's tennis player called Carrie Soto, who is actually briefly mentioned in Malibu Rising. Mm-hmm. And she comes out of retirement at age 37 in an attempt to win back her record of the most Grand Slam wins. Hmm. There's a lot of tennis in it naturally, but as someone who was put off by Leanne Moriarty's little, what is it called? Apples never fall. I was going to call mm-hmm. it little apples will grow, which I think is like <laughs> my dad's phrase for when you do something and it will have later consequences. This one's called apples never fall. And I thought that one was a little too much tennis and not enough character. And when there was character, mm-hmm. it was kind of annoying. This one does 
a lot of tennis, but used to build and show character, which I really enjoyed. Cool. It has this gorgeous father-daughter relationship at the center, and then the romance is more of this cute subplot, and I really liked that dynamic. It also has this really thorough exploration of the tension between being competitive and successful in an area like sport and being likable, particularly Mm -hmm. for female athletes, which I thought was super, super interesting. It's just really, really readable. I absolutely flew through it. So definitely recommend giving that one a go. In terms of watching, have you watched much in October, Michael? I have. Um... I started and finished a new show amidst being sick. Um, It's called The Sex Lies of College Girls. It's on HBO Max. I loved Um, this. Yeah, it's so much fun. It's exec produced by Mindy Kaling. um, And it stars Timothy Chalamet's sister, um, Pauline Chalamet, but also Renee Rapp, Amrit Kaur, and Alea Chanel Scott. Um, And it follows the first couple weeks of uh, college for four freshmen who randomly are assigned to live together and they go to Essex College which is a fictional college but is definitely like like maybe a Cornell stand-in like it's in Vermont like mm. beautiful flowers very college um full of very wealthy students um Feels Cornelly, I think, though Cornell. I know uh, York, Mindy Kaling went to Dartmouth, so I mm. feel like maybe she drew on that a little bit as well. Or maybe that, yeah. Mm. Um, what I really liked it is it covers really relevant topics without being like too Twitter brained about it. <laughs> um, like there's nuance and depth to issues, and it doesn't like crucify people the minute they like do something wrong. Mm. Um, like, the, in the first episode, Pauline Chalamet's character is, like, from um, a very white town in Arizona. She, her, like, dad is the manager at, like, CBS, something like that. And she, like, has never met a person of color before um, and, like, falls for, like, these rather, like, these racist stereotypes about her coworkers. And instead of, like, her being like shunned forever and like this being like an ear like nothing she can come ever come back from she like learns from it and becomes a better person and like is not hated and I think that like well at the still time it's like pointed out that like yep, what she did was wrong mm. um and I really enjoyed that kind of approach to um like these important discussions about race and sexuality um that come up in the show so I would – it's also fun and, like, funny and, like, like fun college stuff. So I would recommend the new season comes out in November, which I'm very Ooh, excited about. I was just going to ask that because I watched the whole first season, binged it last yes. year, and I've been patiently waiting the next one. Definitely recommend it to anyone, especially if – I don't know about you, Micah, but I was quite turned off by the name of it. I just thought yes. it seemed like – one of those kind of brash, silly, like, do you remember Cougar Town? Like, it was giving yeah. me that vibe where I was like, this is not for me. And it's actually really, really great, really thoughtful, and really smart. So mm-hmm. I'm so excited now for season two. I know. Very. On a very different recommendation, <laughs> um, I watched a fair bit of Bluey, the Australian kids cartoon this month. Uh, it's about a blue healer puppy named Bluey, of course, and her family. So she's got a little sister, Bingo, and a mom and a dad. And it, I just enjoyed watching it because it's one of those kids' cartoons that's also really for parents. Like there's an episode that's kind of the core of it is about how the parents have stopped making time to keep the romance alive in their relationship. <laughs> so like kids can watch it and they see Bluey and Bingo having this like fun restaurant game for their parents, but then parents can watch it and mm-hmm. see the very real discussion between these two cartoon dogs. There's also this episode called Sleepy Time, which I think like 
the rankings say is the best one. So I went straight in and watched that and it, oh my God, it destroyed me. I was actually sobbing. It's set in Bluey's little sister Bingo's dream. And it has this message about how parents are always there for you, even when you're a big girl now. It was just so cinematic and so touching. (laughs) So if you just need like a little fun, wholesome break, highly recommend Bluey. It's a joy. Amazing. Last but not least, listening. Have you listened to anything fabulous? I have. October? Um, October was like the month of new releases. Wasn't Truly, it? yeah. Um, I one of the many albums that came out this month that I really enjoyed. Um, um, it's the Loneliest Time by Carly Rae Jepsen. Um, it's very fun. It's a good pop album. Um, the Loneliest Time, the like title track, is like. One of the sound bites is on TikTok going viral, which is funny. Of it's like course. the thing that's on TikTok, um, the clip is actually the bridge of the song, and the rest of the song doesn't sound actually that much like it. Um, oh. It's interesting when that happens. Um, yeah, so I really like the loneliest time. I really like Joshua Tree. It's just fun and like boppy and a good time, and would recommend. Always love some Canadian pop. Oh, I always forget she's Canadian. She well, the loneliest time is her and Rufus Wainwright. It's like deep. Oh wow. Oh yeah. Okay, I'm gonna have to give that a listen. I have been a little consumed by Taylor Swift's Midnight's, like everyone else this month. I will say controversially, I am not the biggest fan of it. So I had a lot of problems with it at first, mainly that it all kind of sounded the same. I didn't think it was the maturity that I was hoping for and expecting. But I have been able to finally pick out my favorites. And I think those songs I've almost made as like a mini album and I am listening mm-hmm. on repeat. There's a few that I think I'm just, they'll go in a playlist and I won't listen to them very often. But mm-hmm. there's a few that I'm really enjoying. I would like to read my list of songs that I do think are yes. bangers and are up there on uh my favorites of Taylor's would have, could have, should have, which I think is one of the 3 a.m. versions or 3 a.m. edition songs. That I think is the absolute best one. Mm-hmm. I like Sweet Nothing as well. It has a little Ireland shout out. That's fun. <laughs> Karma is good. I think, again, lyrically, some of it's a little. I can't cringe. get over Cat on My Lap. That one really <sighs> gets to me. Yeah. Um. I like Bejeweled and I like You're on Your Own Kid. So they are my top five. This is kind of one where I'm not sure if I do see it changing because the other ones are not really grabbing me as much. Snow on the Beach mm-hmm. I actually really like, but I, it's kind of hard to get past the the bait of the Lana Del Rey collaboration that is just kind of backing vocals, maybe. Mm-hmm. So I'm sounding like I'm being really harsh on this album. I actually, as a whole, have come to quite enjoy it. I've been listening to it basically nonstop since it came out. And I do really want to go to the Taylor Swift tour. I've seen Taylor Swift before. I loved it. As longtime listeners of the pod will know, I am a longtime Swifty. She's fabulous. We love her. It's just... This album might not be my very, very favorite. This month in politics, I thought we would talk about um, uh, one of the big news stories of the month. Um, this month, it finally happened. Elon Musk took over Twitter. Um, a day we were anticipating, I will say that. Um, this saga has been long. Uh, earlier this year, Musk floated the idea of buying Twitter, um, citing that there needed to be changes to protect free speech on the platform. Um, he does not like the fact that people get banned on Twitter. And so in April, Musk did some back, like, hid not backdoor, but like secret back and forths with the executives at Twitter and came to an agreement to buy the company for $44 billion. $33 billion of those were going to be his own money. And this was in April. And this got, like, a lot of people on Twitter very upset. Um, The people who don't like what he stands for, obviously. Um, Then a sigh of relief was heard across the Twitter space. 
as in July, Musk pulled out of the deal saying that the market really went down between April and July and still has. Um, and he said that he did not have the money, the $33 billion anymore. But then because he had already signed a contract, the Twitter executives threatened to sue him and they were going to go through this long trial in October. Um, but faced with this trial and this desire to not do that, um, Musk agreed to buy the company in mid-October. So in the last dwindling days of October, Musk uh, took over, which led to fun tweets about people joking that they had just been fired from Twitter and this was the function they had created, mostly like all the horrible algorithms that ensued that is really annoying, Um, but also led to like immediate Elon Musk shenanigans, um, including him walking into Twitter HQ holding a sink and saying, I own Twitter now, let that sink in. No, no. Yes. Are you kidding? Did that actually happen? No, it's true. It happened. Oh I watched God. the video. He did like a dad joke to did a dad announce joke. it? No. Yeah. Um, and he did many things, um, including – throwing out like a bunch of like this is what I'm going to do including saying that he wants to convene a council to make a decision every time someone gets banned from Twitter which um I don't think he realizes how many people get banned from Twitter it's not right that's a lot yeah exactly he also made himself CEO so he's now CEO of four companies um as someone tweeted if Elon can be CEO of four companies I think that proves that CEOs don't do anything Um, which is the case for some CEOs, but not all, I think. He also proposed a $20 monthly fee if you wanted to keep your blue check verification, which we'll talk about later. And then Stephen King uh, said, I wouldn't pay $20, and Elon countered with $8. So I think in Stephen King's defense, I don't think he will be paying anything to keep his blue check. $8 is still too much. Yes. So this big news, I think, brought a lot of concern to people at the platform, people talking about leaving the platform in their various communities, which is like a funny reversal from people like leaving to Parler, which I did not realize that people were pronouncing it Parler and not Parlay, which is like a bastardization of the French to begin with. Um, But yes. I have to uh, say I had never heard of this platform until maybe about a week ago. So yeah, when Trump was kicked off, a bunch of people on the right moved to Parler and it's like exists now and people are on it. It's not that big though. Um, But I was thinking about Twitter and politics and like the ways that we could talk about this week. And so I thought Mm -hmm. I would talk a bit about, um, how Twitter has factored into social movements and politics, because I think a lot of um, the people who are concerned about Elon Musk taking over Twitter are those people who are part of social movements. Twitter's been around since, like, for um, 15 years now, since, like, 2007. And I think the first real time that when you ask someone, like, about, um, name a time when Twitter really influenced social movements is they will say the Arab Spring. And that's when people really saw like the political power of Twitter come into um, like off the internet and onto the streets. This feels like eons ago now, but in early, in late 2010 and early 2011, nations um, across the Middle East and North Africa took to the streets to protest against authoritarian regimes. One of the big ones was Egypt, obviously, and Egypt is like specific to this Twitter social movement because the Egyptian part of the Arab um, Spring happened because of a hashtag relating to a specific individual who's killed. And we like see hashtags about individuals who are victims of um, state violence, like a very big part of Twitter's social movements, but other like countries included like Syria, which then devolved into civil war, Tunisia, which was rather successful until a couple years ago where they backslid a bit, um, and other nations in the area. People use Twitter to um, organize mostly during the Arab Spring, so people. One reason why people don't join protests is because they have like a threshold of how many people need to be part of this protest before I am willing to join. And what Twitter allowed is um, for people to see that there were, in fact, thousands of people 
joining the protest. And so people who had this really high threshold, like, saw that it was met and joined into the protest mm-hmm. of the people who would like were already on the ground doing that activism um and resistance like before the revolution it also meant that people could coordinate without government interference at the time um governments had like the idea of like shutting down twitter was like less of a thing that people did so now we see like social media certain sites like get fully banned in certain countries like China um, right, that was less right. of a thing then um, and Twitter and Facebook meant that people could spread their messaging outside of state-run media so like traditional like television newspapers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and made organizing much easier um, I think now that we're god like 11 years out from the Arab Spring there's some debate about like how much it was the Twitter revolution. People go back and forth, but I think the like conclusion that people can come to is that Western media in particular likes to describe the Arab Spring as like all it was was Twitter, which is inaccurate. What it was was people using Twitter and Facebook as a tool that enabled and aided the revolution but like the causes of the revolution and the reason why it was happening wasn't because people were like chatting on twitter it was happening right yeah we're fed up with their government and it was like a way to enable people to go to the streets i think when i was thinking about like activism on twitter i think what's really interesting is that like the arab spring is this first instance where everyone was like oh yeah twitter activism is real and like people Mm -hmm. like join together. But then the way that most people talk about Twitter activism is when they talk about hashtag activism, or some people even call it armchair activism. Um, And that's when people organize online using hashtags um, to organize people and information. And I think most of the time you see the terminology hashtag activism, it's used in like a derisive way or like a disparaging way. Like, oh, that's just hashtag activism. Like that's not real change in activism that's happening, which is such an interesting contrast to like the ways that we've seen Twitter actually move people. And to the fact that like when you think of some of the largest social movements, especially like in North America, um, in the last decade, a lot of those are like primarily tied to their hashtags. Like the hashtags that they have used are like synonymous with the movement. That's interesting. Now that you say it, that is so true. Yeah. And those things obviously like have left Twitter. Um, in various ways. The, like, most obvious example is Black Lives Matter, which is, like, a collective of people and outside of Twitter, but the hashtag Black Lives Matter or BLM Mm. is, like, integral to that movement and, like, how we understand it. Um, And organizing happens on Twitter all of the time and is really useful um Naomi Day wrote this medium article about in like June of 2020 about the importance of Twitter and Black Lives Matter um she her like tagline for the article is the revolution for black knives will not be televised but it probably will be tweeted which I think is accurate like especially in June of 2020 we saw the social media being such a big part of the organizing of people and also like in the Arab Spring, going around traditional media to show what was really happening in some of these protests. Naomi Day's article goes through, um, like, tips and tricks for how to use social media as a way to spread your activism, but I think it comes back to this, like, important point that Twitter is a tool for the revolution, but it's not the revolution itself. Like, there's people in community outside of an online space. Mm -hmm. Um... And while you can reach people, like, outside of your community through Twitter, it is not, like, the place where changes will be made. Um, I think this is, like, more than with Black Lives Matter, like, Twitter is not the place where changes will be made. Is like, most, it's shown really prominently with Me Too. Um, Me Too, like, more than BLM is its hashtag. Like, it is hashtag Me Too, and some yes, people refer to yes. it just that way. I think the history of Me Too is so fascinating. It started actually in 2006. Wow, I wouldn't have thought that. It feels like it, I just assumed it started when it took off in 2017, 2018. 
No. So it actually was started by um, a black woman named Tarana Burke, um, who founded the Me Too movement as a way to create community, a community for advocates, specifically advocates who are advocating for those experiencing sexual violence. Mm. Um, and the goal was to spread awareness and reduce stigma. Um, Twitter obviously didn't exist in 2006. Mm-hmm. She used MySpace as the place to do her organizing. And Me Too was, like, she named her movement Me Too and have been, has been organizing under that name um, ever since. And then obviously in 2017, all the revelations about um, the abuse that Harvey Weinstein was perpetrating was coming out. And Alyssa Milano tweeted, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And when asked about where she had come up with this idea, she had said she had gotten the idea from a friend. Her tweet went viral, obviously, like Me Too, like is a thing that everyone knows about. And it's Alyssa Milano, you know, we've got yeah. Charmed. It's Alyssa from Charmed. Um, and she definitely like got support from other women in the industry. Which interesting is that like the next day she responded to her tweet saying, oh, someone told me that this was Burke's idea and she credited Burke and said, I am so impressed by it, like inspired by her story. Here's the link to her movement that already exists. But like at that point it was too late. Um, Which I think definitely shows the um, kind of ways that hashtag activism or activism on Twitter can kind of get, can spread so far and wide that it doesn't, it like loses context and meaning Mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. What was interesting when I was looking at Me Too is that in that first day, it was like in October actually, there were 500,000 tweets tweeted that day, but actually there were 12 million posts on Facebook. In one day as Um, well? In one day. That's crazy. Yeah. And, uh, that means Facebook's analysis shows that that means that um, one in four people on Facebook like knew someone who had posted about wow. Me Too. So it's interesting to think like when I think of Me Too personally, I think of Twitter. Yes, yeah. So it's interesting to think that actually no, like Facebook was just as big or bigger mm-hmm. in it. Um, and obviously, like Me Too has had had consequences in the real world as we like to say people being fired and like accountability and like especially in the movie industry like the introduction of like intimacy coordinators who make sure that um people feel safe on sets and that's become so commonplace now like that's a role that we all have heard of and understand and recognize the importance of and it's kind of strange to think how recent the prevalence of that is yeah. So Me Too becomes like definitely has an effect outside, but is 100% like a hashtag activism that then gets internalized to some extent. Pulling back a little bit, I think it's interesting to think about like why Twitter itself is so effective for these social movements. And a study I found came up with two reasons why. One is that like the specific structure of Twitter allows um, things to spread really quickly. So Twitter isn't reciprocal. Think like Facebook friends are reciprocal. You have to accept someone to be your friend on Facebook. On Twitter, you can just follow someone and it means that people can gain a vast amount of followers really easily because you don't have to like follow people back. Yeah, and it's much more acceptable to follow random people or people Mm -hmm. you think are funny or people who you think are smart or, you know, people you admire on Twitter. Whereas Facebook, I think for the most part, still has this like close family and friends Yeah, exactly. The fact that you can like follow people instead of friending people means that your networks can on Twitter don't have to reflect your networks in community because mostly on Facebook, Mm -hmm. you're friends with people who you're friends with in real life. Yeah. um, In like quotes and um, on Twitter, you don't necessarily have to be so it can like spread across communities quite easily. The other reason why Twitter is so amenable to um social movements is that its format is really easy for sharing. Um, So having a short text-based format leads to quickly processed and therefore shared information. Um, Used to be only 140 characters, now it's 240. Still quite short. 
though Twitter is now pushing like you to read every part of a thread, which is really interesting. Mm. Um, who knows if that will stay? I think also the ability to retweet and quote tweet means that you it adds to the spreadability of information. And Twitter obviously like, has an algorithm that changes quite a bit and it affects what we see, but generally the Twitter algorithm puts things that are going viral into your feed so that you see what everyone is talking about. Um, and you see the things that are the most popular. So Twitter has been quite effective for certain social movements and has allowed for these um, social movements that um, are trying to promote equality and social change. But there's another side of the coin, obviously. These aspects that make Twitter so useful for those type of movements, we've noticed, especially in the last two years, make Twitter very appealing for spreading misinformation, conspiracy theories, and harassment. And means that the shareability of stuff on Twitter um, means that misinformation can sell, like spread like wildfire. Mm. And say you're someone with a lot of followers, if you say something that's rather shocking and salacious, millions of people will see it. Twitter is trying, it isn't perfect, obviously, like as an institution, but has been instituting rules for the last like, like for its entire existence, but for the last like four years has been trying to curb some of these problems. Like we talked about like blue checks are a way that Twitter Mm -hmm. tries to combat misinformation. Blue checks verify that the person who is tweeting is who they say they are and not like a BBC parody account or someone pretending to be the president of Chile. In recent years, Twitter has also introduced fact-checking features. So a message will pop up that says when something is blatantly misinformation, specifically like around COVID. Or if you are retweeting or tweeting an article, it'll ask you if you've actually read the whole thing, which I think is a really good way of getting you to know, like to think about what are you actually... What am I doing? Is this actually appropriate? Yeah. Exactly. And then of course, famously, Twitter has some of the strongest content moderation policies on the internet. And this has resulted in the banning of prominent figures who spread misinformation and bigotry like Trump and Kanye. It'll be interesting to see how the the pushing of threads, like you mentioned before, will also help. Because like you mentioned earlier, this idea of Twitter brain of, you know, you've got the 280 characters or so. It causes these really complex ideas to be reduced down to nothing and it gets polarizing and people people get reactive and it's about having the hottest take in the shortest amount of characters but what is actually accurate or what is helpful and I think threads might be a really useful way to actually share information rather than just try to get retweets with a hot take amongst your you know frame of network exactly i think it's been interesting to see people's reactions to twitter trying to combat misinformation Mm -hmm. with these different techniques if you ask some people these steps don't go far enough um particularly if you ask like minorities or activists who are facing harassment on the site but then other people say they these policies go too far and that they're a danger to free speech obviously elon musk thinks the latter and he now owns twitter so Things are bound to change in some way and probably towards his direction. There's this wonderful article in Time that interviews activists who use Twitter really regularly to around the world and their reaction to Elon Musk um, buying Twitter. Um, one activist says Twitter has played an important role in mobilizing people in, hi- in historic ways. Um, whether the marginalized can express their opinions freely against oppression, exploitation, dictatorship regimes that seek to suppress free speech. And this activist said that he's really concerned that Elon Musk's understanding of free speech differs from um, there's so much that um, Mm. it puts the kind of so like social movement space that is Twitter at risk. Mm -hmm. The other so while Twitter is like this wonderful place where you can like promote um, human rights and forward social movements. It's also a place where a lot of backlash occurs and harassment. Mm. And uh, another one of the activists interviewed said that Twitter under Elon Musk would make an already deadly Twitter even more lethal for our communities and democracies across South Asia. The like mention of South Asia is like an interesting one in that in India, Um, We've seen social media be really dangerous for minorities, specifically Muslim Indians, as people are like 
using social media to stoke fear and hatred, and that has been translating to violence offline. Mm. Um, And there's a worry that without the content moderation policies that exist on Twitter right now, that this harassment um, will continue and be even worse. And the article mentions that Musk has been like offering solutions to some of these problems. Um, one of his solutions he offers is that he would get rid of anonymous profiles, i.e. you'd have to use, like, your legal given name to be on Twitter. So you couldn't have, like, like 00x2, but you also couldn't, like, have a jokey Twitter name. You'd have to be yourself. Um. And this is, like, I think this example demonstrates the kind of two-sided nature of, like, every solution when it comes to Twitter. Yeah. On the one hand, it means that anonymous harassers can't hide behind their anonymity anymore. Like, when you harass someone, it will be tied to who you are. Yes. But on the other hand, people are anonymous on Twitter because if they weren't, they would face government repression. Um, right. And that would be really dangerous. I think a similar point was brought up a few years ago. I can't remember if it was just in the UK or if it was if it kind of grew like elsewhere. But there was this idea that you would have to to use social media websites. You would have to register with your like actual ID, like a driver's license or a passport. Mm-hmm. And it was brought up because... A lot of people, I think especially influencers actually at the time, were sick of being harassed, and that's absolutely fair. But then a lot of other people brought up what you said, Micah, in that people, certain people need to have anonymity online to safely mm-hmm. organize. Or if you're making people sign up with a driver's license or a passport, what about people who can't obtain those? Do they just not get to participate in yeah. what is now a huge part of our world? Also, like, part of Twitter and the rest of social media is, like, the fun and joy in it. And, like, what would we do without parody accounts on Twitter or, like, the accounts that, like, there's this wonderful person who photoshops Paddington Bear into a movie every single day. <laughs> or what That's about Jason Derulo falling down the steps? Like, I need him to yeah. fall down more steps. I just think that, like, aside from the social media, like, the social movement part of Twitter, like, anonymity like breeds creativity in some ways Mm. um or like not you have to be like a person online like attached to a driver's license but I think yeah that example like shows the complexity of like absolutely it really depends on how you understand the function of the social media of like what rule is important and obviously Elon Musk understands the function of um Twitter in a political manner and that he like thinks it's very connected to free speech but I think the kind of like ideals that he has about like what is a truly inequitable free place of discussion are sometimes at odds with the power for social change that Twitter has had in the past. To conclude and stepping back a little bit, there's 400 million people who use Twitter, according to Twitter. That's like a lot of people, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, but it's also not like the majority even close to the people who live on this planet Mm -hmm. um and it's like if you break it down my country is not even it's like not even close to the majority of any country and well obviously twitter like spreads outside of the social media it's not like the be all end all of political organizing or even social media to begin with um so if twitter goes down in a ball of flames i don't think that means the end of these places of community that people have found or the social movement organizing that has been so powerful in the last decade. And people find new ways to do that um, as they've always have. Um, So I think there is still hope, maybe just not in a bluebird tweeting sort of way. So for the pop culture segment of this episode, I wanted to talk about a story that I think should have been a lot bigger in October because this month it was announced that members of South Korean boy band BTS would be joining the military. And for how huge this band is, I really was surprised that this wasn't making more headlines. So I am going to give you all the details. Firstly, for the uninitiated, who are BTS? Also called Bangtan Boys, BTS is a South Korean boy band who formed in 2010 and then started releasing music later on in 2013. There are seven members of the band. We have Jin, Suga, 
J-Hope, RM, Jimin, V, and Jungkook. And these boys basically led the Korean wave into the U.S. in terms of music. They have smashed all kinds of records. They are the best-selling artists in South Korean history. They've topped the Billboard Hot 100 with songs like Dynamite back in 2010. They're basically huge. They're also very well known for having an enormous and very dedicated fan base called the BTS Army, which is ironic given our current story. (laughs) ARMY is actually an acronym that stands for Adorable Representative MC for Youth, which I I only learned. No idea. Right? I just assumed they were called the ARMY because they are kind of like as, an army of fans. Yeah. They're an army of fans. It is like a term that we use, but also because they are so organized like mm-hmm. an army. In 2020, there was a Time article that labeled the BTS army a devoted fandom with an unrivaled level of organization. And I think this is very fair. Basically, mm-hmm. the army have one mission, which is not only just to love the BTS boys and enjoy their music, but is to spread their music and their message far beyond South Korea. Mm-hmm. So they've been doing a lot of organizing on platforms like the aforementioned Twitter. One thing they're really successful at is organizing hashtags so they can get things to trend. Um, there's actually currently more than 47 million Twitter followers of the BTS account, which given your previous numbers, Micah, that's like a tenth of all Twitter users, right? Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I think we've all seen their impact on the platform. I know back when I was on Twitter, there was basically a BTS trend every day mm-hmm. any news story the replies would have a bts fan cam attached to it i kind of hate to say it now but i did actually have to have multiple bts members names muted on the platform because <laughs> they would come up so often and i actually didn't even follow anyone who was a dedicated bts stan or so i thought they just got retweeted on my platform so many times that I had to take some regrettable measures. (laughs) But they're huge. They dominate Twitter. Another thing that I think is super, super interesting is that they do a lot of translating. So basically, people Mm -hmm. volunteer their time to translate not just song lyrics, but also interviews, social media posts, all kinds of things from the group members into languages like English so they can be more easily understood by a wider audience. I believe that just one member of the group, RM, is currently fluent in English. So this has been vital for their success. Mm -hmm. And another measure that they do that I find is so interesting and really worthwhile is they actually coordinate with nonprofits to organize fundraisers and philanthropic efforts amongst the fandom. So didn't they also like organize to buy all the tickets to a Trump rally so that no one would show up. They did, yes. Now that you mentioned yeah. it, they did do that. Yeah, the K-pop stands came out. They bought all or like reserved all these free tickets and then barely anyone else could actually reserve the tickets mm-hmm. and it was comically empty. So they're just, they're super organized and, you know, maybe it's for better when they're doing these charitable endeavors or for worse when your platform is invaded with pictures of Jungkook and you don't know who this man is, but that is okay. (laughs) So the army, they were left a little upset earlier this year, back in June when the band announced a temporary suspension of group activities to focus on solo projects and other endeavors. Now, the Hybe Corporation, which is the company that owns BTS's label, Big Hit Music. So just to be clear here, we have BTS, the band, we have their label, Mm -hmm. Big Hit Music, and then we have Hybe Corporation that owns the label. Hybe Corporation clarified that BTS are not disbanding or going on hiatus, but they would be focusing on individual careers with the label's full support. 
Now, to me, that does kind of sound like a hiatus. So maybe our understandings of that word is different. But essentially, mm-hmm. they put out a please don't worry too much. <laughs> Um, they would still be doing things like filming their weekly web series called Run BTS, which I did not know about. But the fact they do a no. weekly web series, that is so impressive. Crazy. But although Hive Corporation were like, guys, 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 don't worry. Their stock decreased by $1.7 billion in market value after that announcement. So people mm-hmm. were already a little upset. Now comes another hurdle for Hype Corporation and BTS. Conscription. So, yeah, since 1957, all able-bodied males in South Korea must complete around 18 to 21 months of mandatory military service. So they're required to enlist by the time they're 28 and complete the service between the ages of 18 and 35. So really by 28, you have to be like, hey, I am going to join the military, but you can do it much, much earlier. You can actually do your service a little bit later, but you have to do this at least 18 months um, before you turn 35. Why? Because South Korea wants to maintain the ability to defend itself against any possible attack from North Korea. And the Koreas are actually technically still at war. Mm -hmm. So... This is a thing they need. There are exemptions, though, to this conscription. And a lot of people were hoping BTS would get one. So some examples um, are athletes who win medals at international competitions. There was a Tottenham footballer, that's a UK soccer team, Mm -hmm. uh, named Son Heung-min, who won a gold medal at the 2018 Asian Games. And his exemption because he was granted one, meant that instead of enlisting for two years, he only had to do four weeks. And yeah, he completed this back in April 2020 when the world was basically on pause anyway. And he is well back to playing football in the UK. Good for him. Yeah. High-level classical musicians have also been granted exemptions in the past. Uh, For instance, Jin Cho, who was the first Korean pianist to win the International Chopin Piano Competition, got an exemption. But pop artists don't qualify for exemption. Rude. However, people have been able to defer the enlistment. So a recent amendment to the Military Service Act allows artists who have made a positive impact on South Korea's reputation to delay their enlistment for two years longer than the average person. So while everyone else has to enlist by the time they're 28, these artists could delay until they are 30. Now, the oldest member of BTS, Jin, will be 30 in December. So... Oh, no. We're running out of options here for BTS. So there's been a lot of conversation about whether BTS should join the military. Uh, Should they not have to? Is it a good idea if they do? Is it not? I'm going to cover the case against joining the military first. Uh, Firstly, we've got the economic impact for Hive Corporation. As I mentioned, their stock fell massively in June when people thought they were just going on a hiatus. But uh, skipping forward a little bit, when the enlistment was announced in October, their stock fell by 2.5%. And since June has actually lost about half of its market value. So the company itself are facing some economic impacts, but there's also larger economic impacts for South Korea. There was a Hyundai Research Institute report from back in 2018 that said annually, annually BTS contribute about $3.6 billion to the South Korean economy. So how, like, how does a band contribute $3.6 billion to a country's economy? Basically, BTS are bringing in one in every 13 tourists who visit South Korea. And that figure is actually from 2017. You can only like imagine what it is now. Yeah, They're also generating an estimated $1.1 billion from consumer good exports like merchandise and cosmetics in a single year. 
And a separate report in 2019 found that three BTS concerts in Seoul led to a financial impact of $860 million. So basically from getting people into the country to visit because they want to see where BTS are from, from getting them to go to concerts, from getting them to buy merchandise, the country's making a lot, a lot of money off BTS. Mm -hmm. There's also a political impact to BTS uh, being pop stars. This is like one of those moments where I love just showing how like pop culture is just equally as highbrow as politics is in fact (laughs) twined with it. Yeah, all the time. Exactly. BTS essentially act as ambassadors for South Korea and they could be considered a soft power. Now in politics, Mike, I'm sure you can do a lot better job than I can at explaining (laughs) this, but my understanding of a soft power is this ability to shape the preferences of others through appeal and attraction rather than force like a military, right? Yeah, like we would call force, like hard power, which is why it's called soft. Right. So there is a media and music lecturer from Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia called Dr. Sarah Keith, who explained, you know, them being a soft power is why we have a K in K-pop. You want to brand it like a nation. It's like a nation branding strategy. So you can immediately identify where it comes from. And we've kind of seen this in a larger sense, in a more concrete sense. The president of the Republic of Korea elected special presidential, uh, sorry, elected BTS to be special presidential envoys for future generations and culture. Very fun title. Uh, And invited Mm -hmm. them to give talks at the United Nations on many occasions. So yeah, they're kind of like youth ambassadors and like culture ambassadors in South Korea, but also giving these United Nations talks. And they've also been invited by President Biden to give a landmark briefing on Asian inclusion and ending anti-Asian hate crimes in the U.S. So they've had some real political impact. So based on all these factors, it seems the public were persuaded. According to ABC News, the National Assembly's Defense Committee would conduct a survey on how South Korean people felt about conscripting BTS, and it came back that a majority of 60.9% said they were in favor of exempting the group from military service. And meanwhile, we had 34.3% opposing the idea. And some others. So majority of people in the country were okay with BTS not joining the military. You know, we've got a lot of other people doing it, but they were okay with these seven guys not doing it and continuing on with their musical efforts. However, there's also a considerable case for them joining the military, regardless of what your thoughts are on armies and war and that kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Firstly, there's this idea of fairness. So Lee Ki-sik, who is the commissioner of the Military Manpower Administration in South Korea, said that it would be, quote, desirable for BTS members to fulfill their military duties to ensure fairness in the country. And in general, it seems that in South Korea, the public isn't too fond of men who attempt to evade mandatory military service or receive special treatment in that area. And an example of that and why joining the military might actually be good for BTS's long-term career is in the case of a Korean-American singer and actor named Yu Sung Jun, who became one of the most popular K-pop singers in the late 90s, very early 2000s. But his career actually ended in 2002 when he was accused of evading the mandatory military service by becoming a U.S. citizen. So if you have like another citizenship and you can live in that country, you don't have to do your military service. And people were not happy about that. He was actually banned from entering South Korea again and became the only person in the country's history to be banned from the country for acquiring another citizenship. Like that was his reasoning. Yeah. Wow. It's only recently that that situation has had some resolution. So you could see that BTS would be looking at that and saying, I am not taking a risk of being exempt because your career could be canceled like this man's was. 
There's also the band member's own preference to consider. Members of the group have actually spoken before about their intent to enlist, and a lot of BTS ARMY stands on Twitter pointed out that this wasn't actually surprising to them because the members have spoken about it in interviews. There's mm-hmm. even a song called What Do You Think? where Sugar raps, we'll go serve in the military when the time comes. So it's been sprinkled in. And that all goes to say that in October 2022, Big Hit, the music label, confirmed that Jin, who is the oldest BTS member at almost 30, had actually withdrawn his enlistment deferral request and would be inducted in the military by the end of the month. And they also announced that other members were expected to enlist later on, kind of taking it in terms like a relay team. And the band had plans to reunite in 2025. So basically for the rest of 2022, the few months that are left, and then for 2023 and 2024, members of BTS would be in the military. So what have been the reactions to this? Honestly, as someone who has not like been following it before now, quite shocking news. So as I mentioned, the fans weren't by and large hugely surprised given the fact that the group has spoken about it for a long time and you know the conversation around whether they would enlist had ramped up since the hiatus announcement and Jin getting closer to 30 kind of good for them uh the news was announced to fans first on a social media app called Weverse which is owned by Hybe Corporation that Mm -hmm. parent company and it's basically an app for music fans where they can communicate like with artists and get this like very direct select news so the news was shared on there first and the fans heard it first and the fans were basically like yeah we are supportive of this we will wait for you we'll see you in 2025 (laughs) guys there's also been a lot of jokes around this i did see a very funny tiktok that was like someone trying desperately to go to sleep while there was a lot of singing of BTS's dynamite. And it was like, this is what it'll be like to try and go to sleep in this South <laughs> Korean military next year. Uh, on the daily show, Trevor Noah, the host actually joked about this saying it was great news for South Korea. He said, their army is basically unstoppable now. There's no army in the world. That's going to take a shot at these guys. Are you kidding me? Who's going to be stupid enough to take a shot? Everyone's a fan. Enemy soldiers are going to be like, ah, I just got stabbed by Jin. This is the best and last day of my life. (laughs) But the question is, will BTS actually be doing that kind of frontline military service? Probably not. Um, Previously, entertainers who had been listed into the South Korean army would be assigned duties relating to like radio and TV material promoting the 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 military and they were kind of called entertainment soldiers. So, you know, you might, your your job in the military might be going on TV and just talking about recent happenings. Mm -hmm. But this set position and the way that it was assigned to people who had been in the entertainment industry was retired in 2013 following complaints over fairness, which I've spoken about being a key pillar in South Korea previously. However, Defense Minister Lee Jong-sup said back in August that if BTS members were to join the military, they would likely be allowed to continue practicing as a band and to join up with other members of the group for tours overseas. So it may not actually mean a complete halting of BTS activities or even like the group's individual career activities. A... Spokesperson for the Korean Defense Ministry said on October 18th that members of the group will be able to take part in specific national level events, even as they complete their service. So it's likely we'll still be hearing of BTS Mm -hmm. while they're serving and they'll still be performing and doing activities, not in like the enormous capacity they've been doing now, but I, I think in some. So that's where we have landed. We have one of the biggest musical acts in the world taking a little break so members can go serve in the military. And believe it or not, this is not the first time that celebrities have 
being drafted. I know, Micah, you and I have talked about Elvis being drafted mm-hmm. back in 1958. He served in Germany until 1960. But we also had Clint Eastwood, who was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1951 during the Korean War. And he ended up being sent to California to complete basic training where he worked as a swimming instructor. So he didn't actually have to leave the U.S. and was able to just uh, teach other soldiers swimming. So that, not an awful service by comparison. Tom Selleck, almost similar situation. Uh, During the Vietnam War, Selleck was issued draft orders. But to kind of take a little bit of control into his hands. He joined the California National Guard and was able to serve there from 1967 to 1973. I ended up appearing on quite a few recruiting posters in the future, as you can imagine. And then finally, we have the story of Muhammad Ali, who was drafted during the Vietnam War, But this was also during the time of the civil rights movement. And as a civil rights activist in the U.S., he basically said it was against the teachings of the Quran and that he shouldn't be asked to drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam when black people in the U.S. were being treated so poorly. So he was inducted in 1967 and he just flat out refused to step forward. They called his name multiple times and he didn't. Mm -hmm. He ended up being arrested and had his boxing license suspended. And he was then found guilty by a jury for this like awful act of not wanting to be in the U.S. military during the Vietnam War. And this verdict ended up being appealed up to the Supreme Court and wasn't overturned for another four years. So while he was free during that time, he wasn't able to work like some of the best years of his career were taken away from him because he made this stand that he did not want to join the military and he did not want to as he said drop bombs and bullets on brown people in vietnam and during this time he uh, did quite a lot of touring around the u.s speaking at colleges um and really speaking about the civil rights movement and Mm -hmm. kind of in those four years the public tide started shifting people were becoming vastly more interested in the civil rights movement and the work that was being done there. And we're becoming more and more disenchanted with the Vietnam war. So thankfully that verdict was overturned and he was able to, you know, be cleared and have his boxing license restored, but he really had to make a stand there. And I think that shows how difficult and uh, sensitive this can be, you know, it can, it can take Mm -hmm. a huge personal toll on you to make a stand like this, but as I'm sure he would say, absolutely worth it in his case. So that's all I have from pop culture. Um, I hope I'll have some updates over the next couple years about what BTS are up to. (laughs) All right, then. That is it for another episode of Different Things Can Be Sad. Micah, what will you be up to in November before we reconvene? Um, I will be cat sitting. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, should be a fun time. And otherwise, just enjoying coziness. Remind me when Canadian Thanksgiving is again, because I forget every single year. It already happened. It It already happened? Yeah, it was in October. Um, Wow, I'm sorry. It's way earlier. It's when the harvest actually happens. But I will actually be doing a Friendsgiving around American Thanksgiving for a friend who is coming back from America. So very cute. Yes. I'm quite excited for Thanksgiving this year. It's going to be my first one in my new apartment. So it'll be cute. a fun little event, though I will have to do all the cooking, which I am a little scared of. <laughs> I'm only just, you know, getting good at that. So I'll be back next month to report how edible the mac and cheese was. If you would like to keep up with any of our shenanigans in the time being we are on instagram as at dtcbs podcast and then my personal one is at yasmin lomax micah what are you again what's your handle i'm at micah han on instagram and twitter <gasps> the For famous now. twitter the twitter who's got a shout yeah. out all, all episode so yeah follow us there keep up with us and we are excited to be in your ear holes again in november bye bye Thank you.